Please join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We are getting close to the end of chapter 5. As we go to God's word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his help and aid. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word before us. We ask that you would open our ears that we could hear you speak, open our eyes that we could see your ways, your glory, open our mind to understand, open our hearts uh, to receive uh, your truth, and strengthen our hands and feet to uh, live uh, lined up with uh, your revealed will to your gathered people. Father, may your word before us indeed be our rule, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, those of you that know me know that sometimes I wrestle with titles of sermons, because if I can get the title, not so much right, but if I can get the title um, aligned with the text, Maybe, just maybe, it'll help me remember, and maybe it will help other people remember. And so I really struggled with this, uh, um, with this title, and uh, I really want to present it with two titles. Um, and I want to start off by asking a question. What's your attitude toward list? What's your attitude toward list? Are you attracted to them, or do you seek at all costs to avoid them? Do you find them to be a blessing or a burden? Now, the original title, as you see, there is just another to-do and not-to-do list. Here's a response. Okay, great. It's a blessing. I love lists. They push me. I'm good at checking things off a list. So just another to-do and not-to-do list, great. But if you take away the just and you leave it with just this, another to-do and not-to-do list, not okay, great, but oh, great, a burden. I hate lists. They paralyze me. I am not good at checking things off the list. Well, in our text today, there are two lists. But they aren't to-do lists. They aren't telling us to do or not to do anything. Rather, they are you are list. As they present the character qualities of people who are dominated by one or two things. The flesh or the Spirit. Now we have arrived at week 20 in our series, The Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. Remember when we looked at Mark's Gospel, the main question was, who is Jesus? Now that we're in one of the letters to the churches, our main question is, what is the Gospel? And Paul is presenting the Gospel over and over again in this letter that interestingly is written to defend the gospel, to defend himself and his ministry, to defend uh, the theological uh, defense of the gospel message, 
And finally, to present the ethics that flow out of the gospel message. Paul, remember, recognized that when false teachers in and around Galatia were saying, faith in Jesus Christ is necessary, but it's not enough. In particular, you need to get circumcised. You need to become Jewish in order to become Christian. And he could expand that into other things as well. He recognized that it was a clear and present danger. It was the not enough. And so Paul writes a letter. A letter that the first two chapters are autobiography. And the next two chapters are are theology. And the last two chapters where we are are ethics. The practical application of the gospel message to the lives of his readers. Now remember, beginning in chapter 5, it's the move from theological exposition to practical theological application. The theme of Galatians can be found again in chapter 2, verse 16, where three times Paul speaks of justification by faith alone. You know that in chapter 5, he he ask what counts and he speaks of that faith working through love in verse 6 of chapter 5 that faith that he's been defending that faith energizes love and self-giving and Paul wants it to be clear that this love operates in the arena of freedom the first 12 verses of chapter 5 Paul says this don't lose gospel freedom by falling back into legalism and works righteousness And then beginning in verse 13, he says, don't abuse gospel freedom by running ahead into license. Instead, you are free to serve, not free to indulge in the sinful nature. Paul wants his reader then and now to know that Jesus Christ sets us free. And now he's showing us that the Holy Spirit keeps us free so that liberty does not fall back into slavery or lean forward into license. The Holy Spirit enables Christian liberty to get on and stay on the road of love. Not get off the road and end up in the ditch on one side of legalism and on the other side of license. Last week we took a look at verses 16 through 18 and there were three prominent features that we saw emerge from the text. The command, walk by the Spirit. The conflict between The spirit and the flesh, it's a war. And the confidence, being led by the spirit, the confidence that the war has been and will be won. We reminded ourselves last week that Christian conflict is a battle that's fought not out there in the culture around us, but rather in here in our hearts as what we were according to the natural birth battles what we have become by the new birth. The other day I was rereading an old issue of Table Talk magazine, April of 2009, and I ran across an article entitled, The War Inside. And this is how that article begins. The Christian life is a war, and the fiercest battles are those that rage within the heart of every believer. The new birth radically and permanently changes a person's sinful nature. But it does not immediately liberate that nature from all the remnants of sin. Birth is followed by growth. And that growth involves warfare. And so we were reminded last week that the Christian has been freed from the curse of sin and the condemnation of the law. And is now thus at liberty 
to serve others through love by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, Paul declared that there is a conflict. There is a war going on. And next week, he will provide more instruction on how to fight it and how to fight to win. But in our text today, Paul will help us understand the participants or the combatants in the battle, in the conflict, in the war, as he makes his presentation in the form of two lists, along with issuing both a warning as well as an encouragement. Join with me now as I read Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15 through verse 23. Excuse me, verse uh, 19 through 23. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let's take a look at the first list, list number one, the works of the flesh, verses 19 through 21. There's really just two parts. It's pretty easy. The the first list and the second list, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. So here we are, the works of the flesh. Notice the works of the flesh are evident. Remember, the works of the flesh are those actions flowing out of the fallen human nature and its desires. Apart from the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, every human has a gravitational pull toward the works of the flesh. It's part of our DNA since the fall. It's where water flows downhill to the works of the flesh. But Paul says they are evident, they are obvious, they are known, they are plain, they are visible. When you think about it, the old nature is secret and invisible. I mean, how do you see someone's nature? You can't, but the works are public. The works that proceed from the nature are visible, are evident, are out in the open. They're obvious, they're plain. The works of the flesh, Paul starts off and he says they are evident. Well, let's make a few general comments about this list. First of all, it's a list of sins. And it's quite a list. Sexual sins, social sins, sins having to do with the body and the soul. Sins that clearly fit a pagan culture, but sins that also live in the Christian subculture. 
I think it's a good reminder just with this list that sin is not a generalization. Sin has names. In other words, it's the sinfulness of sin. It's the sinfulness of the sinful nature. Those of you that uh, were with us in Sunday school this morning, when we were looking at um, the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, we referenced some of the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. What a great resource for us as it organizes and summarizes the teaching of the Bible. Well, in chapter 15, entitled, Repentance of Repentance Unto Life, are these words in paragraph 5. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Get that? Repent of particular sins particularly. You know, there's a few marriages represented here, I'm sure. And my guarantee when sinners say I do, uh, there's uh, both sinning and being sinned against. And I've seen confessions like this. uh, Honey, I'm a sinner. Will you forgive me? Okay. That gets a little bit of traction. But what gets more traction, of course, is please forgive me for not honoring you when I did X. Please forgive me when I was not patient when you tried to do this. Look at this. This is Westminster Confession of Faith 15. Repenting of particular sins, particularly. That's where the traction gets going. Because it shows conviction of sin. And it shows a real desire in confession for forgiveness. Now, I don't know if you were counting, but there were 15 items on the list. And they can be divided, I think, into four realms. Sexual, religious, social, and what I'm calling abuse. First, the sexual sins, the realm of human sexuality. There are three, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Now these three terms really are comprehensive. One of them, the first one, deals with sexual intercourse outside of the marriage relationship. The next one with unnatural sexual practices and relationships. And the third one with uncontrolled sexuality. Right at the outset is an insight into sin. And here we see this, self-gratification instead of neighborly love. Through love, serve one another. These first three on the list are, no, 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 serve me. Serve my fallen nature. Right at the outset, Paul helps us see sin as being self-gratification, the inward curve instead of the outward love of neighbor reflecting God's love of us. My friends, make no mistake, there is a Christian sexual ethic. The Bible is pretty clear. 2,000 years of what the church has believed and taught and lived by really can't be overthrown by a sexual revolution of the 60s that really is becoming more and more a sexual rebellion. And the damage is everywhere. Make no mistake, 
the Bible. Mark Twain, I think it's, it's, it's said, said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that do, that he does understand. It's pretty clear. These first three, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Basically, anything out of a man, one man, one woman committed covenant relationship for life. And he moves from the sexual, interestingly, into the religious realm. Idolatry and sorcery. Now, because idolatry and sorcery are, um, are, are paired together, it's probably not the idolatry like in general, like making a good thing and into an ultimate thing, but really, no kidding, idolatry. Paul has been riding into a pagan area, people coming to faith in Christ, but that's their background and, and, and this idolatry and sorcery is evidence of a desire to be in touch with the spiritual realm through humanly invented means. To supposedly have God as an ultimate object, but they reject the revealed way that he has made known that he is to be worshipped. Here's examples of the sin of pagan worship. Again, not the broad idolatry, which is certainly true, but specific idolatry. So there's the sexual, the religious, but now the social. Listen to this. It's the largest list. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. You see, when people reject God, they turn in on themselves, and thus they turn on one another. Did you hear that? Prepositions are great. When people reject God, they turn in on themselves and they turn on other people. And of course, the false teaching is doing what? It's creating divisions and strife in the church. Look at how he ends verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The first four describe destructive attitudes and, and the next four describe the results of these attitudes in relationships. These are eight examples of the breakdown of personal relationships, the breakdown of the Christian community. And again, this is significant. Paul is not just a theologian writing from a distance. Paul is a pastor who loves the people of the church and he's praying for them and he's pastoring them even by writing this letter. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. It's the largest category here. It's the social realm, interpersonal relationships. As people turn away from God, they turn into themselves and they turn onto one another. And then finally, you see drunkenness and orgies. And here both are related to drink. And examples of how people misuse God's good gifts. They misuse his good gifts in destructive and sinful ways. Here we see rebellion against the giver of every good and perfect gift. This list of 15 that are divided into four realms is a representative list, but it's not by any means an exhaustive list. Look at how he ends the list. And things like these. 
Before we move on, I think it's important to note that these are characteristic sins of both what we would call irreligious people, pagans, but also sins of religious people. Because where we make distinctions, God doesn't. It reminds me of the book, a very helpful book by Jerry Bridges, Respectful, Respectable Sins. Sins that are tolerated in the Christian community. Sins like jealousy, rivalry, envy. Tolerated? In just a moment, we'll hear the warning. Because after the list comes a warning. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This warning is calculated to shock. It is a categorical statement and it echoes the one who met Paul on the road to Damascus. It echoes Jesus. You know the people that say, well, I don't like this Paul, but I like Jesus. If you line Jesus and Paul up, they're pretty much always saying the same thing. This is echoes of the Lord. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we've got to say what the word do means. It's not a one and done, one off. No, this is do as in habitual practice, not an isolated lapse. The New American Standard says practice. The NIV says live like this. None of us are innocent. All of us are guilty, but here he's talking about people who are dominated by sin, dominated by the flesh. And here we can see how outward conduct reveals inward spiritual status. All who do them habitually and unrepentedly prove that they never received the Spirit. They never had faith. Those, however, who are led by the Spirit prove it not by never doing such works, but when they do them, they repent. And when they do them and repent, they strive against them. The Puritan William Perkins wrote this, that this is a list of vices um, uh, that these list of vices is a mirror to reveal corruption in our own heart. Remember, the battle is not out there in the other people. The battle is in here in our own hearts. And, and Perkins is rightly saying this list is like a mirror to reveal the corruption, the remaining corruption that exists in every believer's heart. Make no mistake. We're talking about sin here. And if Jesus died for our sin, if it cost Jesus his life to deal with our sin, how can we take sin so lightly? Because when we take sin lightly, we're taking the work of Christ, his obedient life and his sacrificial atoning death real lightly also. And I don't think any of us want to do that. Paul will now move from a catalog of vices to a catalog of virtues as he moves from identifying the works of the flesh to identifying the fruit of the Spirit. Here we are at the second list. 
the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 through 23, the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces. It's what the Spirit naturally or better supernaturally produces. It's organic. This list reveals the quiet work of the Holy Spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. The quiet work of the Holy Spirit. Occasionally I will read a book written by um, an army or navy um, special warfare operator. And they talk about their, their line of work is the quiet professionals. Here's the Holy Spirit, the quiet professional, not drawing attention to himself, but quietly producing this life in the believer. And notice the fruit of the Spirit, singular, it's a cluster of nine Christian character qualities, because the true and real fruit of the Spirit always grow together. They are not natural temperaments, and we'll say more about that in a moment. There's three groups of three. The first, attitude toward God. The second, toward one another. And the third, toward self. Let's look at the three, the three Christian virtues reflecting an attitude toward God. Love and joy and peace. You know, you could do a sermon on each one of these. We're moving through them very quickly. Love, the highest of all virtues, the foundation of all godliness. God is love, we read. And Paul wants us to, through love, serve one another. And there is joy, contentment that's not based on circumstance. It's a Holy Spirit produced joy. And there's peace, not only the objective peace of a right relationship with God, but also a peace now with one another and a, an increasingly subjective peace that you have that passes all understanding. Here we see that the Christian's first love is love for God. His chief joy is joy in God and his deepest peace is peace with God. And the next three reflect patience, uh, an attitude toward one another. They are social virtues addressing all the social vices. Patience, kindness, goodness, patience, someone who has a slow fuse, who's not easily provoked. Years ago, in a sermon at Emmanuel Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Delaware, I remember our pastor, Robert Lethem, who has also preached from this pulpit a number of years ago, said in his British accent, and I will never forget this, if you want to look for the Holy Spirit if you want to find out where the Holy Spirit is at work, don't look for people barking like dogs. Don't look for people rolling around on the floor. If you want to see where the Holy Spirit is at work, look for patience. Patience. You want to know where the Holy Spirit is at work in this congregation in your life look for patience look for kindness someone who shows goodness generosity and sympathy toward others someone who is really good yes there is no one good not anyone but hey this is what Paul says there's goodness 
That's a fruit of the Spirit working for the benefit of others. My friends, this kind of life is attractive. People want to be with people who are patient and kind and good. Imagine the Galatian church full of people who are patient and kind and good. And finally, there's the attitude towards self, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're reliable. You possess a humble meekness. You are self-controlled. You are sober. You have internal discipline that helps prevent liberty from turning into license. Now, after the first list, there was a warning. But here, after this second list, is an encouragement. Against such things, there is no law. Remember the warning? Those who do are such things as these. Here's the encouragement. Against such things, there is no law. One function of the law, of course, is to curb, to restrain, to deter. But this, Paul is saying, is positively lawful practice. You're fulfilling the law. Those who manifest this are fulfilling the law. More than those who insist on Jewish ceremonies, the requirements of Jewish ceremonies, and more than those who are following, of course, the works of the flesh. Again, the fruit of the Spirit is a catalog of virtues. It is not a list of rules. It's not a how-to guide. It's not that kind of list. Because if, it's, if we treat it like that, we slip back into a, a Christianized form of works righteousness. Remember the Spirit in Galatians. Christians receive the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 2. God supplies the Spirit Chapter 3, verse 5, Christians receive the promised Spirit through faith. Chapter 3, verse 14, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Chapter 4, verse 6, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 5, we walk by the Spirit. Verse 16, we are led by the Spirit. Verse 18, it's the organic fruit of the Spirit. And the real fruit of the Spirit always grows up together. It's not an a la carte buffet where someone just goes down and picks and chooses. John Calvin in commenting says that only those who bear all the fruit to one degree or another prove themselves to be in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is not natural temperaments, but rather spiritual creations. You know, some of us here are extroverts, you know? Never met a stranger. If there's silence, it scares them, right? They jump in, right? That may or may not mean that they're joyful. It means they're an extrovert. Or on the other hand, an introvert may really look like they're patient and faithful and gentle. That introvert may actually be very apathetic and could care less. These are not natural temperaments. And the fruit grows up together to one degree or another. Philip Ryken in his commentary says this, The fruit of the Spirit is the natural produce of His gracious inward influence. The spontaneous and inevitable result of His uniting us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself is talking about this. And Paul is picking up on this and showing us 
the Spirit's work. In verses 24 through 26, Paul will show us how to wage war. But today, in our text, he has helped us identify who's on the battlefield. Not out there in the culture, but in here, in our hearts. And I want us to end by reflecting briefly on God's Word as both a window and a mirror. Now there is a person described in our text. And I want you to think again about Scripture as a window. There is a person who is described in our text who put off the flesh and put on the Spirit, so to speak. My friends, our text, the fruit of the Spirit, is a description of the character of Jesus Christ. One old commentator said it's a character sketch of Christ. Since the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, it's only natural for Him to produce the virtues of Christ in the life of the Christian. Jesus is the vine. His people are the branches. The Holy Spirit connects us to the vine and produces spiritual fruit in our lives. Look with me at this list and think of Christ. Love. Greater love has no one than this. Joy, for the joy set before Him. Peace, my peace I give to you. Patience, oh, the life of Jesus and the disciples. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. In temptation, Jesus remained faithful, gentle, He's the merciful high priest, self-control. My friends, in the garden, Jesus, is there any other way? The Lord said, His Father said, no. My friends, the self-control of Jesus saved us. When you look at your life, and you don't see these, turn to the Savior. So God's Word is a window. We see Jesus. And finally, God's Word is a mirror. Because I want us to all end with a question that we need to ask ourselves. Not just a question, but probably the question raised by this text. What is evident in your life? What is obvious, plain, and available for everyone to see in your life? Works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? My friends, when you look in the mirror and your first response is either to shake your head and say, is that really what I look like? If that's the case, then fall on your face and plead with the one who came for you. Paul writes to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Because the good news is here that Jesus, the man described in this text, lived for you all of these virtues perfectly. He died for you in your place and on your behalf. He's been raised for you and He has promised to return for you and bring you home. Where we will enter a world where the works of the flesh are done and nothing is left but the beautiful, growing fruit of the Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that this indeed is not a to-do list or a not-to-do list. To be sure, there are virtues, as it were, to put on and vices to put off, but this is, a, this is who we are, Father. I pray that as your Holy Spirit is at work among us, that we would more and more put off the old man and put on the new man. That our lives would more and more be characterized by the life of Christ as we are connected to him by faith. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to enable us to hear both the warning and the encouragement. Thank you, Father, for this list. We ask that you would bless it to our lives, that we would bear much fruit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.